HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, you know, whenever's to like about one o'clock. Broadcasting from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Calling all your questions to 718-497-2128. It's 718-497-2128. Join as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah. Got uh, Dave in the booth. Yo. And we have... Paul Adams, formerly of Popular Science. Hello. No longer at Popular Science. No longer. So is it the science, is, the science is not popular or? Science is still popular. I am, however, unpopular. <laughs> uh, so up until very recently, Paul was the editor of uh, Popular Science's web content in general. Uh, but he most especially was their drone editor and their food editor. Yep. Yeah. Not drones and food. Although I was discussing yesterday, uh, Nomad, the restaurant Nomad, might yep. be the first. I mean, I haven't spoken to them about this, but it makes sense that they would be the first, like, drone-operated pepper grinder. What do you think? Why does that make sense? Because, like, they're always at the cutting edge of that kind of thing. And, like, you know, you want, like, pepper to just kind of appear. You don't necessarily want a waiter with the giant pepper grinder. Mm, drones kick up a big downdraft. Well, that's something that has to be worked on. I guess. What about an overhead pepper gantry, like an XY pepper gantry? And like an X, XY truffle shaving gantry and an XY like fresh parmigiano gantry? That it just, would be like, great. goes overhead and just... Yeah. Zzz, zzz, what do you think? Dial in the coordinates of the plate. That, yeah, and just hit Perfect. that? We yes. love that. Wouldn't you love that? Yeah. I think drones are optimal for slicing meat. The... Well, you mean fast rotors. Well, uh, you know that the people have worked on the butcher robot, but the butcher robot is actually one of the most difficult robot problems that exists. Because, uh, in fact, the, we, one of the interesting if you read um, Mechanization Takes Command by uh, what's his name, Siegfried Gideon, which yeah. is kind of the classic uh, work on um, 
the rise of mechanization. Like one of the interesting things about uh, assembly lines is they were all, like first really applied to food preparation problems like baking, but also uh, things like butchering pigs. But the problem is, is that unlike things like guns and cars, they can't be fully, fully automated because pigs themselves aren't widgets. You know what I mean? Not yet. Well, we've tried to widgetize the pig as much as we can and and the chicken and whatnot, but it still requires some human intervention because there's like a a lot of stuff. So people have been working on the the butcher robot, something they could actually robotically take a non-widget and break it down. So it's a, it's a tough problem. There's a ways to go. Yep. Yeah. But I think, like, hanging a prosciutto above the table and manually flying a drone into it so shreds of it go everywhere. That's that pretty, a pretty, hardcore, pretty hardcore drone. No. What do you mean? Like, prosciutto is tough, and you, want, you don't want, like, it hacked to bits. You don't want... Sure you do. Pulled pork. I could see you doing pulled pork. Like, you throw a mm. pork shoulder up in the air and fly a drone through it. You might jam the rotor into the pork, though. And not into a prosciutto? No, because it's more stiff. You could really just kind of have a grating effect. Stas, would you would you burn a restaurant down? They're tempted to do that with prosciutto. Would you just walk up to the restaurant and just like light your drink on fire and throw it in? Uh, yes. Yeah, probably. Yes. Speaking of drinks, uh, yesterday uh, I had my first uh, of the four Mondays. I'm going to work at uh, Oto slinging drinks, and Nastasia hated the drink that uh, I made for her. Uh, so I will say a little about it. Yeah, uh, sounds great. I, I liked it a lot. I think other people liked it a lot. You know the uh, Amaro Chicharo? Yes. It's like, you know, the central of Italy thing. So it turns out that if you uh, add water to it, uh, and then uh, the problem with straight carbonating like Amaro spritzers is that they tend to lose body as they're diluted down. Like the whole point of a carbonated Amaro spritz thing is to have kind of a low alcohol drink, right? So you're not clocking in at like 13%, 13%, 14%. You're clocking in closer to like 9%, 10 8%, 9%, 10%. Yeah. So when you're down there, in fact, this is exactly... Yeah, it's right around there. So, like, the, the problem is is that you start losing body, like viscosity. <clears throat> now, you don't want to dope that up by adding sugar because the whole point isn't to be pounding a sweet soda. It's to be pounding something kind of refreshing and bitter and whatnot. Right. The answer is, of course, you add glycerin. So, That's what uh, I was going to say. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so you add glycerin. Of course, the answer, the answer is always glycerin. So you add – it doesn't take a lot, by the way. So, like, you know, like a whole liter bottle of, uh, of, of product – can, you know, would have like 15 uh, mils or so of uh, glycerin or, or less. It's much, actually, it's, it's less, it's way less than a percent. I put in like le- way less than a percent. So maybe it was 15 per bottle of chicharro. Anyway, so hmm. it's like not a lot, uh, but it makes a noticeable difference. Salt, right? And then uh, carbonated it. And then uh, I served it with a squeeze, with, with a lime wedge that you could squeeze in. And it tastes remarkably like a Coca-Cola, strangely, even though the acid's not there, but the, the, the overnotes of it. So, uh, so we called it Roman Coke. Get it? Get yes. it? Get it? That but sounds tasty, Dave. Uh, it's good. Uh, the, but for the first time in my life ever, I served a carbonated drink over ice, kind of like Spanish style. So I put the ice into a Collins glass, stirred the Collins glass down, dumped out the extra water, poured it in the drink, and Stasi's like, I don't like it. And I just realized, Nastasia hates ice. Yeah. In, in her carbonated drinks. That's why she didn't like That's the drink. True. If I had just poured her the freaking drink yeah. in, uh, in a wine glass, she would have enjoyed it. And hmm. you know what? Like, 
crap on me for not remembering what Nastasia likes after all these freaking years. I was so caught up in like the fact that I was doing something I hadn't done before that I stopped thinking about what Nastasia liked. <laughs> like so like whenever like it, it, it's so crap on me. My fault. My bad. Last night I was blaming her. I was calling her a bad person. True in front of people. Which also true. Yes. But in this case it's like it was totally totally my fault. <laughs> a lot of people don't like rocks. Yeah. Yeah, well, they shouldn't order a drink on the rock then. Mm. I mean, if it says on the rock. I didn't even see it. No, no, but no. Why would Nastasia think I'm going to serve a carbonated drink on ice (laughs) when I've never done it in my life? So, uh, but on the other hand, like, because what's pathetic about it is, is that, well, you know why it is, is because I remember very unusual things that come up a lot. Like, so for instance, Cesare Casella, friend, chef, salumi maker extraordinaire, uh, only enjoys sparkling wine. Really, he'll drink anything you hand him, but really what he wants is is sparkling wine. Uh, and he wants that with ice in it. Sure. That's what he wants. So I get it for him, because I don't want him to have to walk up and deal with some bartender person who's like, you want what? So I, I always, as soon as I see him, if I'm working by, I just get it for him. That way there's no sort of, any sort of interaction, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't want to have to have that interaction. But I feel, and I think I've said this on the show before, I think... Cesare has earned the right, really anyone has earned the right to have a drink exactly the way that they want it, as long as you know what you're getting into. Yes. Within reason. Like, within Where reason. Where do you draw the line? Like, you know, if someone wants to do something that's literally vile and revolting, you know, at, at a public place, well, they, they shouldn't do that. Huh. You know, you, like, your ability to have your drink the way you want, like, stops when I retch. You know what I mean? And certain mm-hmm. things hurt me, but if I'm not a customer, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't hurt you if you see someone having ice in their, in their champagne, does it? doesn't hurt me. It hurt you, Stas? What? To see someone do something horrible yeah. to it. No, you don't care, right? They're, they're drinking it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still... What do you think about, like, when someone takes, like, a, a fine wine and dumps, like, Pepsi-Cola <laughs> into it? Like, would that... Would you be like... Would you just get up and walk out? It hurts me when people drink a fine wine quickly does it hurt you when i eat good food um, yes. in- intensely quickly yes yeah yes, jiro jiro dreams of, of fast fast food that's basically fast ca- it's fast casual restaurant <laughs> jiro <laughs> was fast casual uh so the uh i mean i was dressed casually yeah we you know were. mark had to be dressed casually because he was still on the he was still it, yeah, he was, yeah he, he, he was uh his behind was still set on spray from his uh trip that he'd taken right beforehand so you know fast casual those yeah those formal those except formal they let pants. us sit at that table forever to eat the cantaloupe was that what it was uh, whatever it was, yeah. But you know, like men's men's formal pants. Do you know they have a second button on the inside that you can't see? Did you know that? Yeah. So like formal men's pants, like have a little button over on the left side, like right where the thigh is. And I don't know why it's there. To be to be honest, I don't know why why they have that to even out the tension. I guess from the button that's on the right side up above. I don't know. So anyway, so you can't wear that kind of pants if what you need to do is rip those suckers down yeah. because you're set on spray. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a shorts situation. I'm anti-shorts. I detest shorts. But in that kind of situation or some sort of baggy thing. You had a lot of people there last night. I did. You were in your funeral suit. 
Oh, yeah. So, well, I was uh, bartending in a three-piece suit. And everyone's like, oh, you look so nice. I'm like, well, I was at a funeral. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Now I feel bad for saying anything <laughs> about it. Which was kind of the, the best. Know, uh, well, and from Nastasia's, you know, there's a Peter Kim who couldn't be here today because he's a tool. Uh, <laughs> from the Museum of Food and Drink. I was going to say, it wasn't his funeral, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, not yet. But the uh, I saw him last night. And yeah? His voice was very froggy. Yes. Yeah, froggy as in uh, Little Rascals Froggy. Remember Little Rascals Froggy? Um I forget what I was going to say about Peter, but he was something about... What were we talking about? Ah, it'll come to us. Anyway. Funerals. <laughs> Funerals. So, uh, but Peter wasn't involved. Wait, so, Dave, was, so you never did the, the cherry thing that you were going to do with the three generations. So you missed out. Oh, my God. That's totally right. Well, let me t- describe what happened. That cherry probably still exists. I got a text Gerard. He can't eat that cherry now. We were going to do... So my stepfather's father, uh, like... Uh, Died uh, on Friday. He's 96, 96 years old. It's a good run. Uh, kind of an amazing guy. Up until uh, he was sick for about two weeks, maybe. Uh, so, you know, prior to that, 96 years old, born in 1920, ate like a horse, lived in his own house, uh, you know, loved, loved life 100% of the time, loved life, uh, was the last in a long line of butchers. So, like, for generations, basically, there was an alternation in names. It was, he was Archangelo, Arca- yeah. Archangelo Carmen Adonisio. And then it went back, then his father was Carmine. Yeah. His father was Archangelo. The next father up, can you guess? Uh, <laughs> Carmine. And, they, and they're all butchers from, like, these tiny towns, uh, you know, in uh, Avellino area in, uh, in Italy. And they came over... Uh, the you know the grand the the grand you know my what would be my great grandfather uh, Carmine whose yeah. name na- went by Nanu that was his name mm-hmm. Nanu that was the name that they called him to his face everyone also had nicknames that they were called behind not their to backs. the behind yeah. their back everyone everyone in the family has it like and they're all mean like horses head three curls like all sorts of Did some you of get them one, Dave? Uh, no, no too too young I'm not worth not worth an epithet so the uh, I wasn't part of the politics so much you know yeah. I'm sure I'm sure I did because they never told me to my face you know what I should ask someone like what was what was I called you yeah. know what I mean if if indeed I deserved a name so um, came over in 1908 saved up bought a, a a butcher, uh, you know, a shop. It had his own shop in the uh, in the north end of Boston in the twenties called Adonisio Brothers because he was. And they would go. And so Gerard's father, you know, the, the you know um, Addy Archangelo Papa who just died, he was the last in the generation that was running this kind of old style of butcher shop where they would drive a truck up, canvas colored truck, pick up live lambs in from farms in New Hampshire, come down to Boston, slaughter them, and then hang them up in the shop. In the old days, so there's a picture from the 30s, uh, which I, you know, if I get a good copy, I'll put it on, on Instagram of like sheep with the fur on hanging in the shop in Boston with a live sheep in the back that they were like, you know, not really talking about. Nice. It, Gerard, my stepfather, remembers like him bringing live goats in and the goats like smashing, uh, you know, one goat butted him. Uh, and so they had live, live, all this live. Live put, they're doing their own slaughtering. They would slaughter their own cows, although I don't think they would go buy necessarily their own cows. So they were like real old school uh, butchers in the north end of Boston, and just crazy, insane stories about getting ripped off, like preventing getting ripped, getting back, even at people that had ripped you off. 
like these guys would rip them off on the price of live lambs. So they would drive the truck in, and then they would put uh, they, they would have canvas in the back of their truck too. They would put all these rocks in like a hold in the truck that couldn't be seen. Then they would weigh the truck. Then as the lambs were coming off, they would like dump the rocks onto the back onto the ground. And then when they weighed it, they would have the difference mm. in. Because this farmer had ripped them off for something else mm-hmm. on like a land that they had sold them before, there's all sorts of crazy. There's such crazy stories. I don't even know if I should get into some of the crazy stories. Like one of the crazy stories they would tell is that you know they no one wanted to lose any money. Like everything everything was you know down to the T. You bought a live animal. And you sold every scrap. So, like with with cows, they would take the skins uh, over and sell them to a, t- a tanner yep. who would make leather. But with uh, they they sold a lot of meat to uh, actually the Chinese community and the uh, Jewish community in uh, in Boston. And so they'd hire a rabbi to come and do the uh, the koshering thing, right? So one of the things he would tell me is that, and this is going to horrify. People, so prepare to be horrified. So, like, what would happen is, is they would, like, they had to pay the rabbi to do the certification oh, on the animal, one way or the other. So, in other words, like, animal passes, animal doesn't pass, rabbi still gets paid, right? Yep. And this is good from a rabbi point of view because you don't want the rabbi to think that it's like, you know, uh, that their paycheck is dependent upon how many animals they pass, right? Yep. So, one of the things they used to uh, search for inside the cavity was that the that I guess that the the pleura was not attached, right? right, or something like this. So they, they used to know this, so they would make a small incision in the upper part that wasn't where uh, they were checking, and they would stick their fingers in and just verify that the, and separate out the pleura lining from the thing so that it was all kosher. Mm-hmm. They, would, they would kosher the animal. Not so it's cool. like not cool, right? But in the, in the same way, I, can't, I don't respect – I would never do it, but it's kind of an interesting story, right? The other thing is, is that Gerard's grandfather, so the great grandfather, in the in the twenties, twenties uh, or thirties, made a bunch of brandied cherries, and I had one when I was a kid. They were still good in the in the like eighties, which is when I had one, and there's still I think three left. And now yeah, I have the regret. I, I wanted I to have. You waited so long. You made wasn't, a thing. I wanted three generations of Adonisios to get together yeah. and, and have the last three cherries, and now. It's too late. We'll have to wait for another generation to have three generations for the last three cherries. Maybe we'll wait for the cherries to be uh, 100 years old. I'll ask Gerard whether he still has the cherries. Anyway. Um, hey, you got a caller in line if you want to take that. Yeah, caller. You're on the air. Hi, this is Jeff from Las Vegas. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. I, I have a question about canning. Okay. Uh, I'd like to do some canning for the holidays for friends and family and uh, I was looking at some, some recipes to do that, and they were really pretty simple recipes, things like strawberry sugar, lemon juice, mm-hmm. but they say that you can't double the recipe. And so I've been having a hard time figuring out when can I double these recipes or not double the recipes, and I was wondering if you had an answer. Huh. Well, so do you have the recipe in front of you? I don't. I Unfortunately, I don't have the recipe in front of me, but... Does it involve boiling? Yes, yeah, so it's it's uh, water bath canning and, uh, you know, straight up break down, say, like the strawberries, add sugar, add lemon juice, cook down, and then and then process through water bath canning. Right, but in other words, I'm, there, there's two things that are going to go, there's two things that can go wrong with recipes that say you can't uh, 
double, well, three, I guess. There could be actually something that is like changes when volumes get scaled up and scaled down. But usually what happens is uh, in a, a, a recipe that says, for instance, boil for five minutes, you're going to evaporate a different amount of liquid out of that recipe in five minutes than you would if you were doubling or tripling the batch, right? So one place a recipe can go wrong is at that stage where you're doing the initial boil with the sugar and the acid and the strawberries. In that case, you know, I think obviously with a larger batch, you're going to need to boil for the same surface area of pot. You're going to need to boil a little bit longer because what you're worried about there, and this is not a safety issue, like what you're worried about there is that the texture of the product is going to be right. So I typically don't ever listen to what a recipe says in terms of minutes anyway on a boil for something like a jelly or preserve, I always just pull some out and test it and take a look at it and see whether it feels right. Um, better recipe, the problem is also you're not typically boiling those kinds of things until they're at a very high temperature because you're not relying on the sugar. To, you're only relying on the high solids to help set the pectin, and it's the pectin that's doing the setting, right? So it's hard to test uh, from a temperature standpoint, usually. So uh, that's one reason why people can say that recipes can't double, but you can kind of get a feeling. And I always just, if you boil longer, like unless you boil a long time, in which case you're going to hydrolyze the pectin because of the extra acid that's in there, uh, you know, boil, like having it simmer for a little bit longer to evaporate off more water is not going to really hurt you. It's probably going to give you a little bit of a harder set. The same way that if you're doing like a cranberry sauce and you and you don't, you know, boil it long enough, you don't get rid of some of that water, then, uh, you know, you get a looser set on your cranberry than if you evaporate more water off or use a wider pan is another thing. Now, the second thing is more of a, and by the way, let's be honest, like jams, mold, it's going to be mold. It's not going to be something that kills you. It's going to be that you didn't pasteurize and get rid of all, all of the mold. So there's no reason not, to, as far as I can tell, and please someone in the chat room chi chime in here if I'm wrong, but there's no reason not to double, tre treble, quinjipola, whatever you're going to do to it, uh, a recipe, uh, as long as the individual containers in which you can are uh, all the same size, they should react the same way as long as the vessel you're canning in, so if you have a pressure canner, can uh, actually bring all of that product up to the right um, temperature, right? So as long as, as long as your stovetop has enough thermal output to get a larger canner up to canning temperatures, right, then everything should be uh, okie-dokie as long as the size of the cans themselves. Now, if all of a sudden you're going to be like, well, I have a jar the size of a number 10 can, well then, mm, you know, that's going to take a long time to heat up in the middle and that's not, that's not so so good. Um, but you're dealing with what I like to call a non-deadly product, right? Strawberry with sugar and, and, and lemon juice is not going to be deadly. It at worst will, you know, you won't kill all the yeasts and you'll get some sort of nasty, yeasty, moldy thing in it. Um, but, uh, you know, your chances of death are very low. Well, because of that, I mean, our chances are 100%, right? But uh, you know what I mean? But uh, in terms of that, I think you're okay. So, so it should be more of a textural thing then because you're just not getting the evaporation in the larger quantity. That's my guess. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I agree. I'd say it's not just texture, but the more water you cook off, the better your preserving will be if you have 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes, though, like, preserves can be too hard. I mean, yeah. like, you know, it depends on the kind of level of, of, uh, of pectin. And then also the other problem is, like, <clears throat> sometimes you don't want... I mean, a lot of, also, like, detect, like, the more the strawberry breaks down, but you need the strawberry to break down or you won't release the pectin. I mean, there's no win there, right? I mean, it's right. like... You just don't want to can a super unreduced jam because it will not keep... Yeah, and, a and, lot of water and nobody. Yeah, nobody wants. Also, nobody wants a really watery jam. Nastasi, what happens when someone hands you a jam and it's so watery that it like rolls off the it's side terrible. of your toast? It's terrible. the worst, right? Yeah. You're like, who's this person? Why did they make the jam? Why didn't they just go buy Smucker? Smucker doesn't run off my toast. Yeah. Is that what you say to yourself? Yeah. But if you're gonna make a small batch, you can make a batch and see how your strawberries work because you could always add pectin if you need to. You know. Um, and you can even tell, cheat. Tell, you can even cheat. Tell, even though you're not supposed tell. to reset, you can always just dump more, pe- reboil it and do it. But, I mean, not, not ideal. Or add more sugar. Sure. Um, is this helping or no? I think so, yeah. I, 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 it's the best explanation I've gotten so far. So, And it gives me a good place to start. All right, cool. Hey, uh, Dave, is anyone in the chat room chiming in on, uh, on jams and uh, doubling? Let me check and get back to you. All right, we'll check and get back. At the top of the call, Dave, you said there are three times when you can't scale. Will you? Will oh, the third one. The thir- well, the third one is that there might actually be some reaction, right? So, like, if you, you know, if you're like uh, trebling the amount of uh, baking soda in a, in a Maillard reaction thing, it might not scale right because, you know, you, you're probably added a little more than you needed that first time around, but doing that three times in a row might not mm. scale out right. You might not break down the extra. There might be more residual. I mean, I don't know. I'm just, there might, there is, there's a possibility. I haven't run into a lot of things that don't scale, but there, another thing that's interesting, like in cocktail batching, um, the, uh, the other problem is, is that when you're scaling, you're usually saving a product longer than you would otherwise. And right. so when that happens, uh, things can change. And so sometimes people think it's the scaling that went wrong. It's like, well, no, it's the hold time that went wrong. You know what I mean? So there's, there's, uh, whenever you're messing with a recipe, it's just you have to analyze, well, what is different now from when the first time that person made this recipe, right? So is it, is it the fact that you're using different equipment when you scale it up? Probably is it that you're using it in a different way, i.e., for a different length of time? Maybe uh, you know, and those are the main things. It's like like what what actual process variables are changing when I'm scaling it up or down. Typically, most molecules don't know how large their environment is beyond a very small scale, and so right. uh, you know they can't know uh, what's going on. Um, yeah, chat room is also saying scaling up without scaling the pan size will change the water loss. Yeah, and I think that's pretty clearly what's going on here. But I don't know why recipe people aren't clear on that. See, this is the problem. If you're ever in a position where you're going to write a recipe, right, your editors will, will, will beg you to make it as simple and stupid as possible. And I think in a way that they're right, there's a whole bunch of people out there in Amazon review land who don't want any actual information. But then I feel like that's not us, right? The people that are listening to this show or, 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 or me, like we would just prefer to be told – quickly right like this is why this is like this like you could do it in the introduction to the book you can do it uh you know short thing at each individual recipe um you know c-section on scaling recipes right just in parens c-section on scaling recipes but no one ever does this and so then they're like they, they they you know they propagate these um they propagate these weird like 
myths and, and especially people who are technically minded, if someone says something specifically like you may not double this recipe, right? It's more like, well, why? You know what I mean? And then if they don't write the, the, the you know, section to go with it, this is why, you know? And then you put a big thing at the top of it that says, you may, if you're not going to ever think about recipes, ignore this section. Yes. But if you are not an enemy of quality, read this section. You know what I mean? Nastasia and I think... So I guess, yep, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I guess the last part of the question for me then would be, is there any particular instance you can think of where it would be dangerous to try and, and, and double? Like, I understand what you're saying about the evaporation and, and surface area and whatnot, but... Is there anything I should be looking for, particular types of ingredients or something where I'm actually creating a dangerous situation by, by kind of doubling or, or something beyond what the recipe calls for? Well, the only time you're going to get dangerous situations, I'll give you an example. Like let's say you were to uh, take a uh, cube of mushrooms that is like five feet on a side and pack it solid. And then all you're going to do is uh, pasteurize those mushrooms. So you're not going to kill the botulism in it. You're not going to wipe out the spores. So you uh, heat that very you know, slowly over time. And it's a five-foot block. It's going to take a long time for those mushrooms in the center to get up. You have a very good chance of uh, developing uh, some uh, botulism toxin on the inside of that five-foot block of mushrooms that you're cooking uh, at a low temperature. Uh, because you've made the recipe too big and you can't heat it adequately. And the recipe, if, if the recipe then said, okay, well, I'm going to take those mushrooms up to, uh, you know, boiling point and hold them there for a day, you would actually wipe out the botulism toxin. So that wouldn't be a problem. You still wouldn't wipe out the spores necessarily, right? But it would probably be safe to eat at that point. But just taking it, whereas taking mushrooms in a thin pack, bringing them up to pasteurization temperature or whatever you want and dropping them down is 100% safe in that situation. As long as you're not trying to hold them, you, you know, as long as you realize you haven't wiped out the botulism, you like, you know, it, they're safe to eat at that point, right? Not to keep forever. So, you know, that's a situation. Or like, for instance, when people cook uh, too many uh, pieces of meat together in a bath and they get bag bloat because they have local bacteria growth because the product doesn't heat up fast enough because they've overloaded their equipment, right? That's where the thing, that's where it usually starts getting unsafe. It starts getting unsafe when there's equipment overload. Um, uh, and so that you're not adequately heating in the times or with the profiles that the recipe, uh, you know, the recipe asked for. Most of the time, that's, that is also still just a quality issue, but sometimes that can be um, a safety issue. I'll give you another one. Let's say you're using, um, you know, a curing salt or, or something like this. If you scale up your recipe to the point where you can no longer efficiently coat all the pieces of meat with your, uh, with your salt, if you're doing a dry uh, salting, well, now you've got a problem. You know what I mean? Or if you increase... Uh, or let's say you're making uh, a sausage and you have to do your primary bind, but all of a sudden, you know, you've been making recipes in a KitchenAid, uh, you know, uh, and now you have to scale it up and you're doing it in trash ba uh, trash cans, you know, like 50-gallon trash cans, and you no longer can move the the, uh, the product around. Well, now you might get big chunks of meat at the bottom of that thing that ha don't have adequate salt, don't have adequate whatever. So it's like when I'm scaling up, usually I'm asking myself, 
am I introducing a problem based on the and scaling down too goes the same way like there's some minimum amount of water you can evaporate so like scaling down is actually to me the hardest like especially with sauces trying to make a very small amount of something is almost impossible because you know you heat up your your pan and by the time you get around to adding the next ingredient the other thing has turned to like caramel burnt caramel at the bottom of your pan so it's like to me scaling down is a is a bigger problem but you're always thinking about um, how the shift is changing what's going on with the product. And I think if, as long as you're thinking that way, you'll be okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. All right, thank you. Um, Have a good day. You too. So do uh, you want to do the announcement or some questions? Announcement, because announcement. Annou- okay. So, uh, so here it is. So uh, <clears throat> Nastasi and I uh, are planning on uh, hopefully on Black Friday because we just can't stand not ruining Thanksgiving for ourselves, right? It's just like we can't stand it. Like any time that Nastasi and I have what might be a decent Thanksgiving, we're like, you know what? Uh, let's ruin that. You know what I mean? One way or the other. Like, you know, maybe Nastasia will have a fight with her family or maybe like she'll... <laughs> You'll serve Thanksgiving at 7 p.m. Which, by the way, is fine. And then it, like the, you know, it's like, you know... Whatever, I'm going to get into this later. So the uh, so here's the thing. So uh, we are planning on. So in other words, get ready for uh, a uh, Booker and Dax Centrifuge presale to happen uh, on uh, the Black Friday. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. And the reason why is that we uh, we are almost uh, done approving uh, the tooling. So uh, we, we need to pay for the tooling. It turns out that you need money to pay for the tooling and a bunch of other things. But we are going to – we have the prototype that is uh, fundamentally a production, a production prototype, pre-production prototype from the factory. So we're going to show you a video of that. It does um, 500 milliliters uh, at a time. It's a little bit bigger than a Cuisinart food processor. Uh, it also has the ability to do uh, continuous um, centrifugation. So we'll have a video out about that. And I have tested all of the relevant uh, – some of the relevant recipes. So I can talk about that um, a little bit in advance. But for chefs, it's going to be really great for herb oils. It's fantastic for herb oils. You can do it in large quantities. For uh, bar, obviously, you have uh, you know all kinds of citrus juices like strawberry juice. Um, it can do justinos. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, it's 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 going to be a lot cheaper. Where the retail price, we think, we think. We think, don't hold us to this, we think the retail price is going to be $799.99. But then we want the pre-sale price, don't hold us to it, $699.99. So, yeah, so, and what we're going to do is, is we're going to have a, um, because, because we're going to do a pre-sale, probably not a Kickstarter. I won't want to say who we're going to partner with, but you know who they are and you probably like them. Uh, but the... Because uh, Nastasia and I are going to talk to them, in fact, like later this week to iron it all out. So hopefully more news next week. But the um, what we're going to do is 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 that unless we have a certain amount of interest, we're just not going to do it at all. So we're doing we're basically saying you you sign up for the presale. If we get our go number, um, you know, of sales of presales, and we need to sell quite a few. Like I forget what it is for our go number, but it's not a small number because it's expensive, really expensive to make one of these things. Um, then uh, then you're charged your presale, and then we hope to deliver 
uh, sometime in like June next year in that in that area. But more details to come as the Black Friday approaches. And good news, it will work in Europe with a transformer. You like that? So it, it, it will work on 50 or 60 cycles, but it is a 120 machine. But all you need is the transformer, and we'll figure out which one you need to buy. So I don't want to hear. It's not like the Sears all where it's a free and international nightmare. It's going to be much easier to work with. Is there anything else I should mention about that, Stas? No. That would be, did you say that it's only going to run at that price for a certain amount of time? Yeah, until we make the number we need to go. And, and then, then you'll never be able to get it at that discount price again. Never again. Oh, and also to revive something else on the on the uh, Booker and Dax. Oh, it's not. It's really more of a cooking issue. Stitches. Nastasia started work again on the Enemy of Quality shirts. Yes, look for them at the end of the month. Now you have uh, first of the month going through my head. You know that song? Mm. Yeah, that song, right, Paul? Sing it. I will not sing first of the month. I cannot. Get up, Is get it a Broadway? Up, get up. No, it's uh no. It's the first of the month. Uh, okay, let's get some questions. Uh, you want to take another call? Or yes, wanna... caller, caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, y'all. How you doing? Um, here's my question. I'm doing great, thank you. How are you guys doing? All right. Uh, after Thanksgiving, I've got to do some huge format cooking, and uh, I would prefer not to have to buy a gigantic pot. And by gigantic, I mean like four or five feet across. Ooh. Um, so I'm wondering... If I was just just buy straight thick gauge sheet of steel from metal shop, is there anything I have to do to it before I could let food go in contact with it for cooking? And the same question kind of goes to like rebar and stuff like that. Is there anything I have to do to it? Well, is it possible even. What, why does the rebar need to touch the food? Well, I. I ask that partly because I don't really have a menu in place yet. I was going to kind of figure out what my cooking tools are going to be first and then build a menu around that. So Got it. So really it's like either or. Is one better? Is one easier to prep for food? Got it. Well, you can get used uh, food-grade um, barrels, right? And the problem is most of them are coated with, um, with paints. You can burn them off. I don't know of a cheap source of, like, you might be easier just to get, like, a giant, cheap, used pot somewhere. But the answer is, is that cold rolled steel is fine. You have to rub it, scrub it, and then um, you're going to have to probably season it or it'll, or it'll uh, rust out. But you can season it with, uh, uh, if you get spray grease, like, like Pam and a weed torch, then you can, um, you can season uh, anything you want. It just takes time to season this stuff out. Rebar, I haven't studied rebar in a long time. Rebar is often coated with stuff, um, yeah. you know, to have it bond better with the concrete. So you're definitely not going to want to use the green rebar. Uh, but yeah. I, don't, I don't know whether or not regular rebar, uh, by the way, for those of you, rebar is the, is that, is the, um, the, the steel pieces that are meant to reinforce concrete and they have that weird kind of pattern on it. And rebar has th- this one advantage. It is so cheap. Rebar is so cheap. Uh, and you can weld to rebar, but I just don't know whether anything's in it, um, you know, that is going to cause you problems. Coal roll steel, fine. Um, so, so really quickly, so you think if I bought a food grade, like 50-gallon drum barrel that I could have somebody just cut that thing in half and use it like a pot? Oh, Yes. Yes. 
I mean, where, uh, would, I get one, where yeah. would I get one of those in New York City? I mean, I'd have to look. Like, they're, they're, these are expensive, but people sell them stainless, but you can get them used. Like, I don't know. I've never, I haven't bought, like, I used to, I mean, back when I was younger, I used to just get ones and just burn them out. But, like, that was, it's disgusting. Have you ever burnt out a 55-gallon drum before? (laughs) No. It's disgusting. It's, like, really bad. And, like, the paint fumes were just going and going and going. So we, like... We were doing grills. We were doing the old 55-gallon drum grills, and so we just uh, torch cut in half, and that was, a paint, that was a paint nightmare to begin with, just burning the paint off when we were torch cutting because we, we didn't have a plasma. We were using old-school, like, oxyacetylene. No one had plasmas back then. And, uh, I mean, someone did. I didn't. And then we just put them up on, uh, on cinder blocks and just filled them full of stuff and just burnt them for hours and hours and hours. Nasty. Nasty, and we were in our grates for it. We were just using like uh, that expanded mesh stuff. That actually stuff works okay. I have, yeah. no, I have no regrets on that. But um, like that's the kind of place if you're going to do something like that that you'd put rebar underneath it to like support the grate, and that's where you want to worry about um, worry about that. But uh, I don't. I'm pretty sure that those drums will still hold water once they're cut open. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to do it the long way? I mean, that's what I would do if I got one, just because it would hold, give me a little bit more option. I don't know how the top seals work on. I mean, th- there's some that that have removable tops on them, and those things have elastomer seals, so I would stay away from those. But the old, the, like the ones that are actually just crimped shut, those things should work. And at the very least, if, if you're boiling, you could just put some uh, silicone sealant on the inside of that thing, and they'll stay they'll stay good to go. Especially if you don't need to use it forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, I want to say that I saw someone doing nixtamalization and cutting half 55-gallon drums. I think I saw someone doing like like large-scale nixtamal, under-fired, horizontal, half-cut 55-gallon drums. Gotcha. Yeah, and so you know what? You, you know what the good so thing like, about boiling in a, in, a, in in that shape is a lot like a wok. Uh, you get uh, reduced surface area as it goes down. So be, because you get reduced surface area as it goes down, it's easier to kind of control kind of what's going on. So if you're if you're mm-hmm. flat all the way down, then uh, you know once you get low, you can go from like I'm okay to I'm hosed really quickly because it doesn't kind of taper down. Uh, yeah, and yeah, also sure. for expansion. Uh, you you have more expansion space if you're boiling in something that uh, is, has sloped uh, sides because the higher up you go, the more volume you get per unit height, and so it kind of help on uh, it helps for self boil over problems. And the insides of those things are relatively easy to clean out. the 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 line of gunk around the rims is a little can be a little bit tricky to clean out, but the actual slope part of it is relatively uh, easy to um, clean out. But you're going to want to weld probably something like uh, like angle or something on the cut edges for two reasons: one, to provide stiffness to something that's no longer supported around itself, and two, so no one cuts themselves on the on the cut edges. Do you have a plasma okay. cutter? Gotcha. So just really quickly, like, I have no idea where to start. Where would I find one of those? I mean, am I going to find it, like, at Jetro or, like, Restaurant Depot, or am I going to find it at a pickle shop? I mean... I've gone on... Well, pickle shops tend to use uh, um, HDP or, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
I think they use those plastic ones, which aren't yeah. going to be good for you. Um, I once looked on Craigslist for this time, and like on Craigslist, people have this problem where they have like boatloads of these suckers like sitting around, or eBay, uh, or one of the, before I go to McMaster and pay full price. There's tons of people around who, and if food was shipped in it, you know it's food grade. You know what I mean? It's like you don't want to yeah. buy one that someone was shipping hazardous waste in. Yeah, you know. Um, Very cool. Yeah, but I would check check Craigslist. I I looked on there once because I thought the museum was going to need a bunch of these things. We didn't end up buying them, but um, and did anyone in the chat room have any suggestions? I mean, New York is such a pain in the butt to do anything in. I mean, I love it here, but it's a pain in the butt to do physically do or make anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, All right, well, thank thank you very much. All right, good luck. Let us know whether you found anything. All right, have a good one. All right. Um, let me see. We should get to the ones we had uh, before, right? Jeremy wrote in, Hey, Cooking Issues, thanks for all your work uh, researching and teaching methods to make food. Uh, delicious food. I just I took out the delicious because, you know, if you haven't had my food, how do you know whether it's delicious or not? And by the way, speaking of delicious, next week I'm teaching a class uh, at the International Culinary Center on cocktails. Your time is running out to sign up. <laughs> running out. Uh, we're doing liquid intelligence. Should be fun. Uh, I managed to stop into your last night at Booker and Dax and had a fabulous plate of country hams. Had to leave early, so I hear we missed the after party. Oh, my God. Now I have that song going through my head. Reignition. Best song ever. Best song ever. You even like that song, Anastasia. She, she said yes. She grudgingly said yes. I do like that song. Looking forward to hearing about your next incarnation when it's ready. We didn't talk about this, did we, last week? Yeah, you did. I did? Mm-hmm. I already talked about measuring alcohol? Yeah, you did. Oh, well, so I don't need to get into it, Jeremy. I answered your question. Jeremy, if I didn't answer your question, then uh, get back to me. If Nastasia is just being like, I can't stand listening to Dave anymore, <laughs> so, you know, I don't you know, want to hear it. Uh, hey, uh, Dave and Cooking Issues team, this is Quinn from L.A. Uh, I heard you briefly talking about triple ext- uh, extraction chicken stock in one of your back episodes, and I'm intrigued uh, enough to try to want to make my own using a Kuhn Recon pressure cooker. I've made pressure cooker chicken stock many times, but only extracting flavor and collagen from the bones once. With double or triple extraction, do you pressure cook with the chicken bones slash carcasses, then strain the stock, then add a fresh batch of chicken bones, mirepoix, and other aromatics to the fresh stock, then pressure cook again? If you could please elaborate more on the procedure, it would be great really appreciated and I can't seem to find recipes online. Thanks for your help, Quinn. Yes, that's how you do it. So here's what you do. Uh, you, you, well, if you're making, if you're browning it, which I almost always do, I don't really make white chicken stock very often. You make white chicken stock, Paul? Almost nope. always brown. Almost, always brown. Me. That's me. Uh, so you don't, you, yeah, you, you put it in, you smash as many bones in, and you just fill up to cover the bones. So you're, tr- you're trying to make the richest stock possible, so you're, you don't want to add too much water. The classic mistake everyone makes with stock is they try to make too much of it, and they add too much water, and then they end up reducing it down, which is, I think, not what you want to do. So you, you pack as much in there uh, with some mirepoix, more onions, obviously, although it's going to increase the sweetness. The problem with pressure cooked stocks is that uh, onion flavor drops off, and then to counteract that, you increase the onion amount, but what that really doing is increasing the sweetness. So you have to be careful on that. Don't triple mirepoix, right? You're mainly looking to meet it up. So what I would do it is... It sounds like a scaling problem, Dave. Uh... Well, this is a repetition problem, right? Every time, like, what you're trying to, you're not trying to add that much more veg, right? So after the first extraction of veg in the pressure cooker, and we're talking short stocks, so not like, like you're trying to do like very fresh tasting stocks, so you're not doing like a 45 minute extraction, you're doing shorter extractions on the bones. So maybe you're not pulling everything out, but everything tastes like really good and nice, so you're doing like 25 minutes, like 20, 25 minutes, second ring, let it come down. Naturally, otherwise you don't want to emulsify the fats in, so don't do the fast release on it, right? And then you strain it out, fresh carcass, 
uh, maybe not mirepoix, hit it again, then taste it to see whether you not you want to add any more fresh veg to it, and then you can like you know tune the stuff out there. Maybe throw in a little pepper at the la- at the last one, bring it up, and then you will have like a very very extracted. Uh, like very like rich uh, stock, and you can do it all in like an hour and a half, and it tastes good. Is it efficient? No, but usually what happens is I end up not. I'm not cooking at a restaurant. I don't need that much stock in my house, and I tend to accumulate a lot more chicken carcasses than I have need for so- stocks or soups. And so a lot of times I'll just do like a double or a triple, and I'll get a much more flavorful. I think, in my opinion, flavorful, like fresh, bright stock, because uh, I just don't need that much of it. Does that make sense? Yep. All right, let me see. Oh, no, I stopped Dropbox. Do we have more time for more, or are we host? We're done. Uh, yeah, Nastasia says we're done, but, but, but Dave says that we, we can go. All right. Greetings from the UK. Uh, first things first, thanks for your great show. Uh, wife bought me a copy of Liquid Intelligence, uh, and uh, he enjoys it. Which is good. But since we don't have time, I won't read the, the rest of it. But I'll answer the uh, – oh, by the way, I answered a tweeted question regarding dried peaches and Hustino yield. So, you know, dried peaches lower Hustino yield quite a bit. So he tried pre-blending the dried peaches with 75% of their weight in water, and the yield went up dramatically, So which is good. Good to know right. that worked. So, um, so here's the question. Uh, he, he's opening a new uh, – he or she? He or she? He or she? Nick. Uh, he's opening a new bar. Uh, and he says, we're, uh, we're doing a new bar. We're considering adopting a pre-diluted, pre-chilled batching approach for the stirred drinks on the menu. These are likely to be about 60% of the menu. The aid is to speed up service and ensure consistency. I like both of those things. The restaurant is located in a small rural town where the f- finding and keeping of skilled and capable staff is likely to be a permanent challenge. Batching, therefore, seems to make a lot of sense, as this will also uh, simple, uh, make it more simple to uh, do staff training, etc. The restaurant bar will have uh, a total of uh, 50 seats and one to two bartenders. The issue we have is that suitable refrigeration kit is expensive, so like the Randell that we use at the bar. Yep. Conventional fridges don't appear to be cold enough, and conventional freezers are too cold. So my question is this. It would appear that I can use uh, like a PID uh, refrigerator, like a brew controller, to adopt a, a set point of, let's say, minus 4 to minus 6 Celsius with a conventional freezer whose highest temp would uh, normally be about negative 15 Celsius. The unit has a default three-minute setting for compressor delay protection. Do you have any experience with these type of plug-and-play controllers, and is there anything we need to be aware of? Do you think they'll have an impact on the compressor lifespan that makes the whole batching approach a nightmare? waiting to happen. So it has a protection. So the problem with compressors in general is you don't want to do what's called short cycling where you turn them off and turn them right back on right away because the compressor has to like push against uh, – it's just a nightmare. It like really shortens the lifespan, which is why they have a three-minute cycle on it. Um, I think three minutes might be a little extreme for, for, for uh, kick-in. You could probably deal with a couple minutes more. I think the, the, if you're using a conventional chest freezer – uh, the nice thing about a conventional chest freezer is when you open it, the cold air tends to stay in it. Uh, and so I think that should work fine. I, and and c- those conventional home freezers have the advantage that they're super cheap. So, like, if one dies on you, you can just go buy another one and your PID stuff should be almost plug and play to get to go in. So I think you shouldn't have a problem there. Uh, what do you think, Paul? Sounds correct. What is the Randall cost? I don't know. The problem with the Randell is just we, we never got it uh, – What's the word? Uh, service properly, so the gasket went bad. Mm. What's nice about the Randell is like it. The ones that we had weren't designed to drop the FX freezers. They're very accurate. They go up and down, but they're they're not designed to drop the temperature or something. They're maintained to. to they're designed to kind of maintain it. They're in effect 
are big drawer igloo coolers. So you would open them and the temperature would stay very constant because the cold air would move in and out with the drawer and it's very well insulated. So you get very minimal temperature drops, uh, which is good. So the more insulated uh, your freezer is, which a lot of home chest freezers are very well insulated because they're meant for like, you know, hunters and whatnot who don't want to have a lot of energy input into it. And so they're fairly well insulated. Um, so they should work. You know what I mean? I think it should work. But the problem with uh, reach-in chests is that it's hard to get a first-in, first-out system because the stuff lower is hard to, is hard to get to. So you have a, mm-hmm. a stock rotation issue, but whatever. You can move right to left. Up, down, right, left. You, it's, hard, no, it's hard to literally put stuff into one of those things and to have, like, five bottles tall. You know what I mean? Lower in a rack full of your bottles. Yeah, and then go and rack by rack. Along, slide yeah. 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 There's ways around everything, but it takes a little work. Uh, an alternative or for possible use in conjunction to reduce the opening of the freezer, what are your thoughts on the insert, uh, inserted uh, inset refrigerated bottle well? So it's basically a bottle well that's refrigerated. Um, the one that you showed me doesn't really go that low enough. I am looking into a similar problem, but I'm going to definitely move to a glycol-based a glycol uh, uh, refrigerant system that allows me to keep bottles exactly where I want them. So uh, the wave of the future in terms of this and something I'm working on, like I say, right now is refrigerated glycol. Then you have to, like, obviously wipe the glycol off the outside. That's what those – if you go into a wine store and they have those little vortex chillers, that's all that stuff is, is uh, refrigerated. I'm pretty sure that's all it is, refrigerated glycol. I'm not using salt, right? You ever looked into those things, Paul? I assumed it was water. Water? How's water – well, you think they're actually going at that high of a temperature? For wine? I guess. I don't know. Well, I'm going to do glycol. You know, propylene. Food grade. Yes. Not ethylene. I guess I could do salt, but salt's so corrosive. And then, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. All right. So then uh, next week we will get to, uh, we had some questions. Uh, Maybe we don't. We we talked about melon pan last week, too? No. Melon pan was the one I missed? Yeah. On butter? Right. Son of a gun. All right. Next time, if I haven't talked about the melon pan uh, from Portugal... Give me a call back, and we'll uh, talk about it next week. Go vote. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.